Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. I'm going to play for you today an interview I had recently with Andrew Askins. Andrew's a partner in a company called Built by Crit, and he's actually a client. We did a few years ago a pretty brief strategy call where Andrew had some questions about positioning. I had some input on that. And then Andrew circled back to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I did the thing you suggested. It worked great. And he offered to provide a testimonial. I said, awesome, but let's not do a testimonial. Bit of context here. In 2005, a guy named Gary Bensavenga did a seminar, which he called his farewell seminar. Gary Bensavenga, I think, is still around. He has uh, had a long career as a, a direct mail copywriter. So he's doing, he's writing copy for those, for most of us would say those annoying, <laughs> um, you know, direct mailed advertisements you get in the mail. That's actually a very demanding uh, place to be a copywriter. It's, it's a very hostile environment. You don't get, you don't easily earn attention in that environment. I'm always interested in hearing what people who do that kind of work have to say about what they've learned because they've learned what it, whatever they've learned in, again, what is a very hostile environment. The internet is becoming, well, the internet, first of all, is uh, a sort of, in its native form, is a direct response medium, just like direct email is. So it has a lot in common with direct email. And it's also becoming a very hostile environment, one in which it's difficult to connect with the right people and earn their attention. So again, any anything that this type of professional has to say about what they've learned is automatically going to be somewhat interesting to me because of how relevant it is to connecting and finding consulting clients online. This idea that uh, Gary Bensavenga shares in this farewell seminar is expressed in five words. He said, make your marketing itself valuable. So this is very similar to the idea of permission marketing from Seth Godin, although Seth Godin's book predates this a bit, doesn't predate Gary's experience learning this idea, but it predates the 2005 seminar by six years. And this idea that your marketing itself should be valuable underpins all of content marketing. Like content marketing that's good, that works, is valuable to the readers you're trying to connect with. The marketing itself is valuable. It's not just an excuse to sell somebody. It's not just an excuse to get their attention temporarily so that you can sell them. The marketing itself is valuable. It just takes five words to express that idea, and it's an extremely powerful idea. So anytime anyone says to me that they want to say something nice about my work, my instinct is to say, well, let's go bigger and have you be a sort of guest educator for my audience. And so instead of you saying, Philip did this, it was great, blah, 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 why don't we just take that same idea and expand it and you just talk about either what you learned from working with me or just what you've learned from working with me in addition to what you've learned on your own and share that with my audience. And I think this opportunity is present in many testimonial opportunities. So a lot of you are going to think of a testimonial as straight up self-promotion. If you do it the wrong way, well, that's what it is. But if you do it the right way, I don't think it's quite that. 
But that testimonial opportunity, which you might think of as self-promotion, really, I think, can be escalated, not with every client who wants to give you a testimonial, but with some of them, there's going to be that potential to escalate into a teaching opportunity, which is something where your marketing itself is valuable. It starts to create value for your audience or it adds value for your audience. So that's always my instinct. Andrew was game. That's what he did for you in today's episode. He really spends an hour with me interviewing him a bit, just talking about his journey. And he does a wonderful job of talking about it. It's the journey of a small development shop focused on startups, but not located in one of the three big startup hubs here in the U.S. Maybe Austin might be a fourth one. Maybe Los Angeles might be a fifth one. So, you know, there's really between, I guess, uh, well, now that I think about it, I keep adding, really, let's just say there's about a half dozen cities that are sort of like startup hubs for tech startups or digital product startups here in the United States. We think of every other city as not being one of those hubs. And if you're a dev shop in one of those not a tech hub cities, then there's always the question of, like, can I make it work if I focus on startups? Of course, there's pluses and minuses to having that be your focus. But that's what Andrew was focused on, and he talks about how he's making that work for his business. You hear him talk about dealing with local competition, who already had a similar market position to what he was thinking about moving into. You'll hear him talk about his multiple experiments with lead generation. And overall, you'll hear him talk about getting to understand his ideal clients in a way that helps him find and serve more of them better. Andrew Askins, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. Excited to be here. So not too long ago, you emailed me saying, Exciting thing, exciting thing, exciting thing about our positioning. Thank you for the help you provided. And I said, would you please be a guest on my podcast? And you said yes. And so here we are today. So <laughs> <laughs> why don't you sort of uh, set this up a little bit and and tell the folks at home, like, what you're excited about in terms of what's changed with your company's positioning. And we'll take it from there because I'd, I'd like to sort of tell the story of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So like most dev shops, um, we started off trying to be a little bit of everything to anyone. Um, so we would build websites, we would build um, mobile applications, web applications, we worked with nonprofits, we worked with anybody and everybody who came our way who I could convince to, you know, listen to me for 15, 20 minutes and, and then maybe convince to do some work with us. Right. Um, and we, um, we noticed, you know, I noticed one of our competitors who was in Charleston with us. Um, and I felt like we were doing the exact same thing. I felt like we were both working with a lot of startups. Um, I felt like we were, um, you know, both good at building applications, but every time I would talk to people, they had no idea what I did. Um, and once I explained to them, they'd go, Oh, like, X company. Uh -huh. I was like, yeah, but why, why do you understand what they do, but you don't understand what I do when it, to me, it's the same thing. Right. Um, and what I finally realized was it's because they were telling people what they did and they were being specific about how they were doing it. And whereas we were trying again to be everything to anybody, 
you know, they said, this is who we are. And I just, for some reason, expected people to realize that we were the same thing, even though we weren't telling people that we were the same thing. Um, oh, how int- can, can I stop you right there, Andrew? So please, th- this, please. this other company, like back at this point, what, what are we talking two, three years ago at this point? Yeah, about two years ago. I'd okay. Say. What was, I mean, you don't have to say who they were unless you want to, but like, what was, what did their public facing messaging look like? Yeah. So they basically said we build startups. Okay. That was their, their message. Okay. And they were all about, we are, you know, we build startups, um, not even, you know, necessarily calling themselves a dev shop. Like, um, they were just all about being, you know, the team that built startups. Okay. And we were doing a lot of the same work. A lot of our clients were startups, but we weren't saying that to people. Um, we just told people we were a dev shop and then they just associated us with every other dev shop out there. Interesting. So my second question before we move on with the story is, uh, Charleston is so beautiful, such a beautiful city. It's, it's like a kind of a midsize uh, city. It's, you know, not nearly as big as Atlanta or Charlotte. What's the yep, startup totally. scene like in a city like, or in, in Charleston specifically, but I'm, you know, in a city like Charleston, I'm also curious about. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and we actually came from Columbia, South Carolina originally. So we were in Columbia for just a little while, um, and then moved to Charleston. Um, the Charleston community was a step up from Columbia. There are a couple of actually public tech companies here um, uh-huh. and that were you know, sort of homegrown. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but um, it's still definitely a, a growing community and yeah. still very much a, a smaller, pretty tight-knit group. Um, if you're here for you know six months or a year, you can meet just about everybody who is in the startup community here, um, at least the people who are involved on a, you know, a pretty regular basis. So um, definitely small. And, um, you know, for us, I'd say about 50% of our clients or less are actually in Charleston. Um, But almost all of our clients come from our network here. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Absolutely. Okay, so you you were feeling this tension. There's this competitor. They're kicking your butt. I'm I'm kidding. Maybe, maybe a little bit. <laughs> they were. Right? They totally were. Okay, yeah. so they're, they were kicking your butt. Not afraid to admit that. They were legitimately kicking your butt, and and you're like, what's what the heck? Why why do they have to? Uh, why why can't my these people get it? So tell me what happened next. Um. So I knew we needed to get better at something. I didn't totally, I didn't know that it was positioning. I don't think I had that word in my vocabulary yet. Right. Um, but I knew we needed to get better. To me, it was marketing. We needed to be better at marketing. Um, and I knew I needed to be better at telling people what we did. Right. Um, and I kind of had this hunch that we should, you know, go all in on startups, but I was, I was a little nervous to do it because they were already doing it. I was like, or, you know, I sort of had a relationship with the, the, um, the founder of their company and I didn't mm-hmm. want him to think we were just ripping him off. Right. Um, I didn't want other people to think that we were just ripping them off. I wanted, you know, I, I was nervous to, to be too close to what they were doing. Um, and so I, I kind of was like hesitant to, to go all in on that. 
Um, and I read a ton. I read everything I can find on on building an agency and building, um, you know, a business. You know, I'd love to just read blog posts. Um, and yeah. so, at some point along the way, I found a post of yours, and I I don't even remember today what it was, um, which one it was. Uh, but I found something of yours and and started learning about this idea of positioning and mm-hmm. this idea. Um, and I still in the back of my head had this thought that like, all right, well, we, we work with startups. Um, but you know, the startups are in all these different verticals. So like mm-hmm. one of the things I remember learning from your stuff was like, it's really good to go all in on a vertical, mm-hmm. um, you know, something like healthcare right. or, uh, legal or, um, real estate and, Correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get the wrong information. Or, um, but so I was. I was still struggling a little bit because what we were doing didn't quite fit that. It was. Um, it was, you know, broader. It was sort of a. I think you describe it as like a horizontal market segment instead of a vertical market segment. Right. It was this small group of people in a bunch of these different industries. Um, and so I was still struggling to figure out if we were going to do this. And um, we also, our website at the time was, we kind of knew needed to be replaced. It was flashy and pretty and like people liked it, but they didn't really, you know, get anything substantive out of it. We weren't using right. it really. Um, it wasn't telling our story very well. Right. Um, and uh, uh, I think you know, one of the things that was that was pretty incredible to me was, um, like, I, I after I'd read a couple of your blog posts, I think I was looking for them again, and I couldn't find them in my history. Um, and I, I was able, but I was able because you had such a clear position of like positioning for dev shops or right. positioning for technical agencies, um, because you were so tight on that messaging that I was able to find you like that. Yeah, um, and right. that was exciting. That was exciting to me. I was like, okay, so this is what it looks like when it's working. When you've got your your niche and you found it, and um, and so I think what we that sort of pushed me over the edge. And I was like, all right, I, I've got to talk to this guy and and, <laughs> and yeah. see if see what he thinks about about this problem of like you know where we should focus. Right. Um, and so then we hopped on the phone. Do you want me to? just sort of give my, my memory of how that conversation went. Yeah, that'd be fine. Um, I'm I'm building up a little backlog of questions for you here, but I don't want to interrupt you. So yeah, go ahead with that. And then I've got some follow-up questions. Cool. So, um, from my memory, and this is, this has been a while now, but, uh, you know, we got on the phone, I think we purchased one of your consulting sessions. Um, you know, and I sort of talked to you through, these feelings I was having in this problem of like, um, you know, which market vertical and really it was what was kind of, I realized later was I was kind of looking for permission and you were the expert and you kind of gave me that permission to go in on this vertical. And so going through that consulting session for you with you was helpful. Um, It wasn't necessarily because it was something I didn't have in the back of my head. You helped Mm -hmm. me refine it. Um, So you helped me sort of, realized we could focus on startups, but also startups in our geographic area. So focus on startups sort of in the Southeast yeah. um, because 
those were the people we were seeing who were having trouble finding tech talent. Um, we had a personal connection to them because we were in the South. It was sort of unconventional to be building a startup in the South. Everyone thinks about either the West or the North. Um, so you sort of helped us helped us focus that. But it was also just like having this expert give us permission to like sort of buck the rules and and go in on this this wider vertical or wider um, position. Yeah. Um, and since since then, uh, so we we use that and we use you know some other stuff we learned to try to relaunch our website about a year and a half ago and um, have gotten a lot more serious in the past year and a half, two years about content marketing and, um, and started to experiment more regularly and, and improved in a lot of other ways. But one of the things that has been impressive was um, we went all in on that, that position. So now um, I guess I still haven't said what we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're really building up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are a technical co-founder for hire. Um, so we partner with, industry experts um, who are building most often B2B software applications and they're typically in the Southeast. Yeah. And we help, we come in and they have the industry knowledge, they have the business expertise, we have the technical skills. We help them figure out exactly what they need to build and then build and launch a new product. And most often we're really launching a new business. Um, so we are, you know, the technical co-founder, if you're building a startup in the South and you're a non-technical founder. Um, and really that last piece, I kind of buried it, um, but that last piece is what I think is resonating with people the most, that non-technical word. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have, so what's changed is people now get what we do. And that's been just hugely beneficial. And I could, you know, honestly, it probably isn't the best niche if you're, purely care if you purely care about profitability or, or some of those things startups are are a challenging niche to go after they're tough to find they often don't have as much money mm-hmm. um but it works for us it's where our skills are and what is more important is that people do understand what we do and so now they can more easily tell other people about what we do and they can um they know when to refer people to us they know when to come to us with questions they know um, really what we're all about. And that's been hugely beneficial. And it's, it's that technical co-founder, that non-technical, those are the words that we found that really um, drive the point home for people, um, at least people in the sort of startup world, in the you know, business world, because there's all this, I hate it, but there's all this almost like shame or, or fear mm-hmm. around being a non-technical founder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, when they see that language front and center on our website, go, oh, you're talking to me. Um, and that's that's been the biggest game changer for us. That's so great, Andrew. So I have questions. Um, Please. <laughs> so how did you perceive that people were getting it in terms of the change in the positioning and the messaging? Like, mm-hmm. what what could you observe that signaled to you, like, oh, we're finally connecting. They They finally get it. It was a lot, it's not qualitative, uh, quantitative data. So it's right. not, you know, we didn't see conversion rate spike or anything like that. Yep. Um, you know, we don't drive a ton of traffic to our website. Most of our, you know, business comes from word of mouth, from networking. So it, it was really qualitative conversations that we were having with people. Right. Um, and it was exactly what I 
said a minute ago. It was, you know, before I would have conversations with close friends who I was like, you guys should know what I do. And they didn't really. They were like, they were like, you guys build, you guys build apps, you guys build websites, but I, I don't really know. Right. And I was like, how do you not know? <laughs> um, and I finally realized it wasn't their fault. It was mine. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so then the shift is, uh, you know, I sat down with someone to have coffee uh, a month ago and he was immediately like, yeah, I checked out your website before we like sat down together. And like, I saw that like you guys work with non-technical founders and that was awesome because that's totally me. Like mm-hmm. I am a non-technical founder. I've been like, I've started a couple of startups before and I've struggled. I've always struggled with like the tech piece. I've struggled to find the right people. Um, and so that's me. And that's the difference there. It went from our own friends didn't know what we do to someone I've never met before can look at our website and, um, and, or talk to me for 30 seconds and then get pretty clearly what we do. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's not uncommon at all. Just kind of speaking to the, to the, to the folks at home here, like that's, yeah. Well, actually, let me back up. Would you, are you more of an extrovert or an introvert, Andrew? <laughs> um, I think I'm, I go back and forth every day. I'm, okay. I'm either um, a very outgoing introvert or <laughs> uh, an extrovert who likes to have some time to himself every now and then. Nice. Okay. Somewhere in the middle, <laughs> it sounds like. But, but I love people. I, yeah. I very much love people. And if you can't tell by now, I, I like the sound of my own voice a little too much. <laughs> I think anybody who starts a podcast also fits in that same bucket. So uh, <laughs> guilty, also guilty. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, even if you're not on the extroverted side of things, I think it's the conversations that you have with people is where this shows up first. Like that's the early warning system of a, a fit with what the market needs to hear is in conversation. Just, I mean, just like you're talking mm-hmm. about. So that's a very vivid example, I think, of of how it works for a lot of folks is, you know, the conversations that they're having, maybe they're over Slack or maybe they're over email, but you start to feel a different kind of um, echo coming back. It's like there's a sign of life out there when you get that, you know, that fit in the positioning and the messaging. Yeah, exactly. And it's still not perfect at all. Um, you know, I still need to get better about honing my pitch and, um, you know, we can always be improving, but it's, it's definitely, um, it's those little things that you start to notice and it, it makes a huge difference. Whatever happened with that competitor that you were concerned about stepping on their toes? <laughs> I realized so they're still here. They're based in Charleston. Um, and I just realized it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if someone else is doing something similar to what you're doing. You know, the, you know, we both work with startups. we both are trying to be dev shops for startups, but right. you know, they talk about themselves in a slightly different way. They don't use that non-technical founder. They don't use that you know technical co-founder sort of language. Um, they try to do more marketing than we do. Um, and at the end of the day, like they're probably, you know, we think that everyone is always paying attention to us when in reality, no one is paying attention to us. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's the same kind of thing. It's like, I think everyone knows about them 
And then when they see what we do, they're going to be like, oh, they're doing the same thing. But in reality, you know, most of the people who discover us are discovering us and have never heard of another gift shop or have never heard of our competitors. And um, the ones who do, you know, sure, they probably see some similarities, but, you know, our website looks totally different. Um, our, you know, sort of the things that make us us are still there. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're serving the, you know, a similar market segment. Yeah, I think that applies also in the world of content marketing, because if you're doing any kind of content marketing, you're at the top of what I call the the content panopticon. Like you can see everything that you've ever created. And yeah. if you ever uh, like slightly duplicate a topic, it's very easy to say, yeah. oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm just going to bore my audience. They're going to see that I don't have that <laughs> much to say or they're going to, uh, you know, just give up on me because I've there's a small Venn diagram overlap between this thing that I wrote a year ago and this thing I'm writing now. And the reality is much more like what you said, which is people just kind of stumble into you from, you know, who knows where. And they're, mm -hmm. they're not like it, it's, it sometimes happens, but most are not uh, exhaustively reading your entire catalog of everything you've ever published. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. making a content map and comparing and looking for overlap. They're <laughs> just, they're just kind of experiencing a little bit of it. And then they make a decision to move to the next step or not. Yeah. I'm laughing because I have 100% had that realization as well. Yeah. Um, you know, where I'm like freaking out because I know every single piece of content on our website. Yeah. Not a single other person in the world. Does. Right. Um, and it's kind of the same thing when you're starting content marketing too. It can be nerve wracking to start because you're like, Oh, what do I have to say? Like this hasn't been said a million times before when in reality, you know, most people who are going to find your piece of content have not read the things that you've read. Right. Um, and even if they have, you're naturally going to say it in a slightly different way just by, because you're a different person with different life experiences and, um, and different, you know, personalities than all of that. So yeah. I think we worry entirely too much about, about, um, what we see in other people and um, need to just focus on trying to do cool shit. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you could tell me more about the content marketing. Uh, Cause I did want to ask about what you're doing for lead generation now that you've kind of moved past the, <laughs> you know, the very challenging positioning question. Um, mm -hmm. What does lead generation look like for you? I, Cause that's usually where people focus next and they have to do some experimentation to figure that out. So what are you doing there? Yeah. So I still don't think we have it figured out. Sure. Um, yeah. We are better than we were a year and a half ago um, at lead generation, but we're still experimenting and still trying to find the channels that work best for us. We've seen some early signs of life with content marketing. So, hmm. you know, a trickle of, of leads um, have come in through our content. Um, and we, we do try to write all of our content through the lens of like, how can we teach people who are totally non-technical about business or technology um, in a way that, you know, makes sense to them, you know, try to, and I think that is something that's a little unique. I don't think there's a ton of people out there writing content. You know, a lot of dev shops, I think, get entirely too technical. They get too, you know, in the weeds. And so we try to, you know, figure out how to um, 
teach things in a very approachable way. Yeah. Um, can, can I stop you so, there and, and ask for just like, just like a quick please. example or two of what would, what would an, you know, piece of content marketing that does that, that teaches something to a non-technical co-founder, what would that look like? Like, I mean, you could read a title or two or just kind of, so the folks at home have a sense of what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, so great question. And, um, so I do, I do try to keep uh, content fairly specific because that's another one of those things that helps your content be different from other stuff that's out there is if it is like about a very specific topic, then again, less likely that there's a bunch of other right. content out there like it. Um, so like one article that I wrote that, uh, I'm not actually sure how well it, it's performed, but, uh -huh. um, learning to love your database as a non-technical founder. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we often find is like our clients, when they start working with us, they don't necessarily have the, the budget to build out super complex analytics setup. Um, and even if they do build out a bunch of analytics for their, their new product or app, um, then they still, there's going to be some data that's slipping through the cracks. And so the whole idea of that blog post is like teach someone without having to know how to write any code really. Um, although I do give them a couple of SQL queries at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but basically someone who has never written a code, never connected to a database, doesn't really even totally know what a database is, give them the tools to connect to their app, like the database for their application and understand why they should and um, how they can look through it to try to get a sense for what their users are doing in their application and how they're doing that. Okay. Um, another, like, even less technical, it's sort of technical in a business sense, but not technical in a technology sense, is um, post that I wrote that I uh, had a couple of people respond to was um, using network effects to build a defensible product. Mm. So, Again, it just came from our experiences with our clients. We had a lot of clients who, you know, wanted to, felt like they needed to patent something um, because that would make them more attractive to investors. It would give them a defense if anyone ever tried to copy their idea. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the tough part of that is most things aren't patentable. Right. Um, so I tried to sort of present an argument for why you should consider, you know, network effects, which is just, a network effect basically just means the more people on your product, the more valuable it becomes. So how you should think about building defensibility that way and how it's a more natural way to build defensibility than a patent anyway. And, you know, it doesn't work for every product, but you know, it does, it is um, a valuable thing when it does work. Um, so that's, those are two super specific examples, but um, yeah, you know, that, 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 that second one is just, riveting to me because and it's it's not that the first one it wasn't any good but the second one just so clearly illustrates how you've you started to acquire expertise that the generalist uh might not probably would not have because yeah. um you know it, it's one thing to be a good developer but it's it's quite another to be a good developer and also be able to advise clients about well, you know, just don't waste your time trying to patent something. We've tried that a few times and it didn't work, or we've seen a few clients try it and it didn't work. Like that seems maybe like a small difference and it's, it might just be two, three years of experience, but I think it's a really 
substantial difference because it helps you kind of put you in the advisory position quite a bit more with clients. Have is is that actually happening with you? Yeah. Are you seeing that happen? One hundred percent. And one of the absolute clearest ways to to paint that picture and realize that it's happening yeah. is when we try to stray outside of our our niche. So when we try to take on projects that aren't where we're building experience. And yeah. We've gotten to a point now where we've built our entire process and, and everything for early stage startups. And so that process doesn't work as well for, say, a massive company. Right. Um, anytime I've tried to get involved in RFPs, for, for instance, oh, it's boy. just a, a <laughs> massive waste of time yeah. because our process is not set up um, to deal with that kind of crap. There are certain dev shops where they get really good at writing proposals for RFPs and building relationships with people and decision makers behind RFPs. And and they can build a really incredible business around that. And just the fact that they're choosing to go after those kinds of projects, it affects their culture and it affects the skills that they're building. And um, it's all these little trickle down sort of effects. Um, And so, yeah, the, the, that's been one of the clearest ways for me to see how big of an impact that actually has had. Cause you don't necessarily realize it day to day. Um, but then when you, when you step outside of, you know, your ideal customer, you sort of go, Oh, this is, this is the kind of expertise I've built. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a cool feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess the natural next question is, you know, one of the, th- the things that if it hasn't happened yet, I think you can look forward to it happening is greater power in the sales conversation, meaning you can, you can sort of steer the conversation or you can more quickly build trust or you Mm -hmm. can more quickly move through the sort of, uh, you know, lack of trust. I guess that's the flip side of the same coin, but those are all the like manifestations of power in the sales conversation. I'm curious if you're starting to see that happen as well, Andrew. Yeah, so I think I've definitely started to see that, and I still am building up my confidence as a salesperson, having been a developer before. Sure. Um, so I, I sometimes am, am a little bit blind to it, um, but but for sure, I sales processes feel a little bit more comfortable now. It, yeah. uh, sales conversations feel a little more comfortable, and they feel a little um, more routine. I can sort of ask the questions, and I I also I know what things to listen for now, and my I start smiling when I hear them because I'm like, okay, I, I know what to do next. I know what yeah. to say next. I know. Um, and it's still, again, not perfect. Um, you know, there are plenty of times where I get far along and I think I've got someone, um, I think they're a perfect fit for us. And I, I still haven't figured out exactly how to convey it to them for whatever reason. And so yeah. I'm still improving in that area a lot. Sure. Um, but yeah, I like one of the things that, um, one of the big things too, that's been helpful for us is we have a a road mapping process that we, you know, we charge for discovery basically. Um, and I've learned how to introduce that in a sales conversation and when to introduce it. And I can pretty quickly hear in the first five minutes of talking to someone, I, before I even bring it up, I know what their reaction to it is going to be. Um, and when they're a great fit, I know how to, convey it to them, how to say it to them yeah. in such a way that, you know, the people who are a good fit, those non-technical founders, those, um, you know, who have this deep industry expertise and are trying, you know, really hard to get a tech product off the ground. 
I knew exactly how to raise it to them so that when they are that perfect fit, they go, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Like how, how soon can I sign up? Oh, that's um, great. There's still the, the legion aspect of getting more of figuring out how to find more of those people. Sure. Um, and then the people who are maybe on the edge who would, are still a good fit for us, but um, are maybe used to a different process. Maybe they've worked with the developer before. You know, there's still, still lots of edge cases and stuff that I'm working on improving. But when someone does walk in the door and they are that perfect fit, um, yeah, it's just, it does, it builds your confidence. Yeah. That's great to hear. Um, and to be sure that is like a real art, I think, you know, just handling all the multitude of things that can happen in a sales conversation and, and doing that artfully is it's just a skill that takes time to build up. Totally. It's good to hear those sort of early, early wins are happening. Um, yeah. So back to the lead gen question, what else have you tried in the world of lead generation? Like what else have you experimented with aside from content yeah, so marketing? One of, the, one of the things that I've done a little bit by accident that has worked really well and that I want to figure out how to do more of is building relationships with angel investors. Um, right. And this should have probably been obvious to me from the start, but you know, most startups, um, need some aspects of funding. And a lot of our best clients actually don't, which is interesting, huh. um, but they're a lot harder to find. Right. Um, and so, you know, where I can find people is through angel investors because, um, you know, it's a little harder for me to convince someone to come talk to me because I'm asking them to give me a lot of money. Right. Whereas angel investors are offering to give them a lot of money. Right. Um, and while we could get into the specifics of whether it's actually a good deal or not. Um, sure. And it basically depends from business to business. Um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs start out and the first thing they think is, all right, where do I go to find the money? Um, and again, positioning has helped us there because whereas, you know, before I might try to talk to investors, now I can say specifically like, hey, this is um, why we're a good like why we should build this relationship, um, say it a little more subtly than that, of course, but, um, and like specifically one of the things that I've noticed is again, we're sort of focused on the Southeast and angel investors in the Southeast are more conservative, um, with their money than angel investors maybe on the West coast, at least uh -huh. from what I've read and okay. understood. And so they want to see a product and revenue before they're willing to put any money in. Ah. Um, and we're willing to work with entrepreneurs before they have anything. We work with people who often just have an idea in their heads or you know some sketches on the back of the napkin. Right. And so I can actually go to an angel investor and say, "Hey, if there's someone you really like who you think is promising and exciting, but they're just not to where you're comfortable investing yet, that's okay. Send them to us, and we'll try to help them get there." Um, so you can serve a sort and, of incubation function before the investment yeah, happens. Exactly. And yeah. so building those relationships is something I need to do a lot more of. It's something I'm going to be focused on doing a lot more of um, over the next you know, uh, three to six months. And then um, the other thing that I have been sort of dragging my feet on for a long time because it's, uh, for some reason it makes me nervous, is, um, but that I want to experiment with is, hosting some local events 
Um, so doing like some free seminars. And if you think about it, it's essentially just a form of content marketing. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hyper-local content marketing. Um, and, I, you know, I've already seen that like most of our clients come from our local network. Um, so even if we're building um, relationships locally that aren't with clients, uh, those local relationships can be so powerful that I want to invest more time and energy into building those up as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's content delivered in the format of a, of a live event. Mm -hmm. I, I am curious what the sales cycle looks like for, you know, for what you do for your clients, meaning how long does it take, uh, you know, someone to be, translate from being a lead who just shows up to being a client? What, what have you seen there? Uh, it's not a fast process. Right. Um, and I, again, this is an area where like I don't come from a sales background. So it's taken me a really long time to get any sort of CRM system in place. So I sure. wasn't really tracking this for a while. It was more gut feel, but yeah. recently I've started to get more disciplined. Um, and so total length of the sales cycle for us is anywhere from one to three months. Okay. Um, it's very rare that anyone closes in less than one to three months. Now, what does happen more quickly when a client is sort of an ideal client, when a lead comes in the door and they're an ideal client, is I do close them on a road mapping session very quickly. So right. um, road mapping session is our version of a paid discovery session. Um, we charge $2,500 for it. and going back to what I was just talking about, like when someone is an ideal client for us and they are willing to move quickly, um, I can usually sell them on that pretty quickly. And then from there, it's about a week long turnaround um, to get a, um, to get a proposal to them. Um, and from there, usually it's um, about a month before they commit. Mm -hmm. Um Sometimes that's because they're going to friends and family to raise the money to build this. Sometimes it's because they are busy people who are vicious and doing a lot of things in their lives. And so yeah. they're getting to a point where they're comfortable investing the, their own time in this project as well. Right. Um, sometimes they're going out and getting other quotes. Although interestingly, most of our clients who do close with us, um, I'd say a good portion of them never bother to get another quote from anyone else, which is, um, which is really interesting to me. Um, I think that's telling, <clears throat> I think that means something. In other words, I don't think that's, I mean, you know, I guess if it was just one or two data points you were pulling from, sure. But that's usually meaningful. Uh, if you're the last stop on the, uh, on the buying tour, I, I think that means you're doing something right. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't mean we're just bad at selling and so losing out anytime they're talking <laughs> talking to someone else. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, that sort of uh, started to get a feel for the sales cycle, um, and that's kind of what we see. Um, you know, it's. I think it would be hard for the sales cycle to be a whole lot shorter because we are making a pretty big ask for people. I mean, an average project size for us is in the range of 50 to $75,000. Sure. So that's yeah. a pretty large commitment. Um, and it's going to take some time to build trust with people so that they're willing to make that commitment with you. Um, but uh, yeah. And 
it does still vary a lot. Like one to three months is pretty variable, but something in there is, is seems feels about right. You know, six six to eight weeks. Yeah, I was. Um, if I if I had to guess, knowing what I know about your business, I would have guessed closer to six months, like four to six months. So um, that's actually that. It's nice to have a sales cycle that's that's in the range that you're talking about. It just it makes it feel like you can focus more on the sale and, and it's less of this like lengthy, torturous process. <laughs> um, now I will say yeah. we do often like have an initial contact with somebody and then maybe it's months before we hear from them again. So if you incorporate that into the sales process, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe we have a relation, we start building a relationship with a partner, like an angel investor. And then it's six months before they send us a lead that, gen- that then turns into an actual, um, uh, sale for us. But once we get someone who's actually like, you know, coming to us and is really serious about getting started. And especially once, if we get them to commit to a road mapping session fairly quickly, then yeah, it is, it is definitely, um, um, shorter than, than that. Yeah. I think I want to end with this, uh, sort of broad question. You said something earlier, you said the word relationship building, and I'm thinking about my mm-hmm. audience here, and I'm thinking about, you know, the introverts in the room who are like, that sounds great, but I have no clue what, <laughs> I mean, I know what that means, I know what the words mean, but what, like, how do you build a relationship with a stranger who is not, like, also a another software developer, where you have that mm-hmm. built-in kind of affinity and head start and, and all of that. So can I challenge you to break down what you mean when you say relationship building? Is that okay if we do that? Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to dive into that. Um, I'm going to, again, sort of give the caveat here that this is something I'm getting better at. Um, I do some of it naturally. Some of it is just part of my personality. I like people. I yeah. like learning more about people. Yeah. Um, and so part of it is my personality and maybe that's ex- being extroverted. Although I would say most of the introverts that I know, um, you know, don't mind one-on-one uh, interactions. You know, that's not as draining as a big group setting. Yeah. And the most valuable relationship building for me always happens. And, you know, once I get to that one, one-on-one setting, you know, I'm, I'm honestly not great at big events. I just was talking to someone about this the other day because I was looking at a couple conferences that I wanted to go to with the ultimate goal of like finding some people who I can build relationships with. Yeah. Um, and I was like, how do you do it? Like, what do you do to cut through the noise and find like interesting people? And I, you know, I find big events like that to be, you know, overwhelming like most people do, I think. Yeah. Um, except for maybe the most extroverted of the extroverts who just like completely thrive on that. Yes, um, uh, the Salesforce Dreamforce conference is happening here uh, this week, I think, just, you know, 90 uh, minutes south of where I live. And that's mm-hmm. like 40. I, I just imagine I, I'm going to be cartoonish when I describe this, but I just imagine like 45,000 coked out uh, sales people <laughs> like taking over San Francisco. And I just I can't imagine it's just like terrifying. So anyway. We all know what you're saying here in introvert land. Um, so yeah, break it down. Like what, what, what's the step by step 
for quote unquote building a relationship? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like so many parts of marketing, it's, it's hard because it has to be authentic, right? It has to be genuine. Right. Um, so part of it is just finding people who you genuinely find interesting. Um, so I find angel investing super interesting. I okay. wanted to be an angel investor for a long time. Like that's that for a while was kind of one of my end goals, like okay. do all of this so that I could someday be an angel investor. Nice. Um, okay. And, uh, and I had, you know, I was also thinking about things that would help our clients. So like a lot of the early conversations I had with people were um, around, like I was just going into it thinking like, Hey, maybe I can meet this person. And then when one of our clients needs investment, I can send them to them. So right. it was, I was sort of asking some questions on behalf of our clients. Um, and so, you know, that's, I guess the place to start is just find people you're genuinely interested in. Um, but also, you know, you do want to find people who, who can, can help you. Um, and I mean, it's a lot of, I'm again, I'm still trying to figure out how to get better at it. You want to figure out how you can be helpful to them. Okay. Um, you want to go into it and you want to, um, I think you want to get those one-on-one -one meetings, whether it's buying them lunch, buying them a cup of coffee, um, avoid using the phrase, can I pick your brain? Um, <laughs> Wait, why? But, uh, because it's such a turnoff for so many people. So okay. many people hate, hate, hate that phrase. Okay. Um, what, what do you and, say instead? Um, it varies from person to person and it varies depending on my mood that day. Yeah. Sure. Um, which I know is a super unhelpful answer, but you know, I, I try to think like, what do I have that can be helpful for this person? And sometimes I can't think of anything. And then I'm just like, Hey, maybe you want a free lunch. Can I buy you a free lunch? Okay. Um, so that's you your know, fault. I try to... what, what's maybe, the, what's maybe the best one? Like on a good day, you, you want to have a, you know, in-person meeting with someone. This is, you know, step two of this process. Step one is find, find somebody interesting that you're genuinely interested in. Yeah. And so, What's an example of like, okay, you, you really came up with something good. What, what did you say specifically? Um, so, I mean, the best scenario is when, you know, I know I've gotten to know them, you know, maybe from afar and okay. um, I've, I've read something about them. I've, you know, I've learned to taken the time to really get to know them. Okay. And so then I can very genuinely say to them like, Hey, I admire this specific thing that you've done. Or I've, you know, maybe it's someone who's a blogger. Hey, I've read some blog posts. Or yeah. one of the things that's been hugely helpful for me recently, that's a whole nother topic is back in the spring, I bought a newsletter and the newsletter has about 10,000 subscribers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a lot of work to run it day to day. And honestly, it doesn't generate that much revenue. But right. one of the incredible things that it's done is when I share people's content in that newsletter, that gets noticed. And everyone is always trying to get their content shared. Okay. And so I've started to build some relationships with bloggers online just because they saw me share their content. Or I you know, maybe tweeted at them and um, mentioned that I shared their content. Although, again, the best ones have happened when they noticed it naturally, not okay. when I tried to sort of show them that I'd done it. Yeah. Um, right. And they'll reach out to me and they'll just be like super thankful and be like, Hey, thanks for sharing this. And then I 
um, a lot of times I've read their content and I've probably read other pieces of content. And so then I go, yeah, um, I've been following you for a while. Happy to share it. Um, and specific questions are good. Like anytime you can ask someone a specific question, like most people like to help people. And so, but they don't want to answer vague questions that require them to think a lot. You know, they want to answer specific questions where it's like, oh, I've told people about that before. I can rattle off and answer. I'm knowledgeable about this thing. I can rattle off an answer to that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, so let, so let's go back. To, okay. So let, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. that's cool. Uh, we're, so let's go back to step two. So um, let's say you, you just, it's published in some local uh, business journal that so-and-so invested in some company and you're like, Oh, that's really cool because of whatever reason. So you're reaching out mm -hmm. to that investor. You're probably going to reference, Hey, I saw that you invested in so-and-so. Is that the kind of thing that you feel like would be more genuine and organic? Yeah. I think some of that, okay. um, you want to be careful with investors specifically with that stuff. Cause you know, I try to make it clear that I'm not looking for investment right. because that's most of the people that they're talking to are right. people who are looking for investment. And so again, with investors, and this is still, I'm trying to hone this, but what I think about with them is like, okay, what does an investor want? An investor um, wants access to better deals. They want, you know, the best startups who are going to be super successful um, to come to them. Right. And so I, my pitch to investors right now, it's like, Hey, you know, I saw that you're investing in this, or I you know, found you online. I found you here. Um, you know, a lot of investors have a thesis has like a very specific thing. So maybe right. you reference that. So okay. you've done your homework. Okay. Um, and then it's like, Hey, I would love to just learn more about the kinds of companies you're looking for. Okay. Um, you know, would maybe they publish it on their website. Yeah. But you know, I would love to be a resource for you and just send companies your way. I talk to a lot of startups in my day-to-day -day life. Right. So if I find someone who's good, you know, I won't just send you crap. I, I want to, you know, send you vetted leads essentially. Right. Um, and so it's this combo of like, Hey, I want to be helpful to you in this way. And I also want to learn from you. And those are, I think, two powerful things. Um, again, still getting better at that. I'm not sure if that's the perfect thing. I think, you know, I've also tried to offer, you know, to help out with technical due diligence before. Uh -huh. um, that hasn't really, you know, I've, I've had people sort of jokingly go, that would be great, but no one's actually bitten on it. So I, I'm not sure if I'll keep using that. Um, okay. But yeah, that's, it's just showing interest in people. Um, and and trying to be authentic and trying to think about them first. Okay. So we're somewhere in step two, three here. Let's say you've had your, you bought them lunch, whatever. You had a great conversation. What, how do you, it's not done there, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so definitely not. how do you sort of over time continue to try to build on that? I guess that's maybe the, the next thing people need to hear about how this turns into a process. Uh, and I promise after that, I'll, I'll stop beating you up with questions. <laughs> no, please. I love talking about this stuff. I could talk about it all day. Um, so that's an area, that's probably the biggest area where I need to improve um, is being more consistent with follow-up. Um, okay. And, you know, the people who are, who I think are really good at this 
find ways to automate the process of um, automate the process, but still do the follow up itself manually. So maybe you just you enter them in a CRM and you make a note every month to check in with them and find some authentic reason to follow up. Um, so you know you maybe you sign up for news alerts about their um, like if, again if we're using the investor example maybe you sign up for news alerts um, with uh, you know people who I'm trying to build relationships with who write content right. a lot of times I'll subscribe to their newsletter right um, and then I challenge or I'll follow them on Twitter and then I'll challenge myself anytime I see something interesting not to be afraid to speak up, you know, shoot them a, a quick email response and just say, Hey, thought this was cool. Great job. Or, um, you know, reach out to an angel investor and be like, Hey, I've got this, this startup. Um, are you interested in an introduction? Um, you know, just try to find ways to check in with them periodically. And again, the best people who I see who are the best at it, um, you know, if you try to automate it too much, it feels disingenuous. Right. Um, but if you try to do it completely manually, like just completely keep everything in your own head, like I've done for the past two years, <laughs> then you, you're not consistent enough about it. Right. Um, right. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works out really nicely where like we have, there's a local angel investor who has gotten on our newsletter. Um, and we put a lot of effort into our newsletter and so he'll just shoot me a reply every now and then and be like, Hey, I really liked this. this mm -hmm. one. Um, and so that's awesome because I know that, you know, I'm not having to do a whole lot of work to stay top of mind with him. Um, but you know, for most people, it's going to be harder than that. And you don't want to, you know, go around adding people to your newsletter willy nilly because that's a surefire way to make someone feel like you're spamming them and, yeah. you know, give people an icky taste in their mouth. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, find that balance between automating, you know, it enough that you can be consistent and that you're reminded of it, but doing the actual follow-up super manually. That's awesome. Okay. Andrew, thank you. This, it's just been so generous of you to kind of put a microscope on your own business for the benefit of my listeners. And, um, you know, show them you know, how you have approached so many of these problems that they're all you know trying to solve for. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. So online, where could folks see what you're up to? How could folks get in touch? What would you point yeah. people to? Um, so our website is built by crit, K-R-I-P.com. Um, on our blog, we write a lot about um, – about building businesses and building tech products. And specifically for your listeners, um, we have a series we started last month called our Open the Agency series, where we are sharing all of the financials behind our agency. So you can see uh, exactly how much money I make in salary each month. You can see um, our sales numbers each month. You can see our expenses each month. Um, so we've decided to just totally open everything up. So for your listeners, that might be something that's interesting um, and you know, you can follow along on the crit website to sort of keep up with that or follow me on Twitter. I'm at Andrew Askins, A-S-K-I-N-S. Um, and yeah, if anyone has any questions too, um, you can reach out to me on Twitter or uh, my email is pretty easy to find on the crit website and, you know, would be happy to talk to people about this stuff. I, 
I love talking about growing businesses and growing agencies. I'm a, I'm a total dork for this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, you've been a great guest on this podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Philip. Had a blast. Hey, it's Philip here. If you enjoyed this episode of this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could share it with one person. Maybe you know one person who is a dev shop, not in one of those primary startup hub markets here in the U.S., or maybe outside of the U.S., and they're trying to find their clients and would find Andrew's story interesting. If you can think of one person that looks like that, reach down to your podcast player and share this episode individually with them. I'd really appreciate it.